Open your Bibles or your John journal, if you have that, to John chapter 3. The portion that Lindsay just read is a part of our text this morning. We're going to cover verses 22 to verse 36. So it's a pretty lengthy passage, pretty significant passage. Uh, I'm going to go through a lot of it very quickly. Um, Part of that is because I want to spend time on the single sentence of verse 30. I think there's a lot for us to apply to our lives uh, with that line but also because we have a baptism this morning, which I'm very excited about. So we want to get to that and celebrate that. These are always some of my favorite services. Speaking of some of my favorite services, if you missed last week, uh, it was a beautiful opportunity for us as a church just to commit to what we believe. And so last week we covered John 3.16, probably the best known verse of the entire Bible. And we had a big John 3:16 sign on the stage and everyone who believes, whosoever believes, had an opportunity to come up and sign their name on that sign. And it represents the body of Christ at Fellowship Bible Church. And that sign is hanging in the um, area out here, vestibule outside these doors. If you turn to the right, when you go out, if you weren't out last week and you want to sign it, we would love for you to. Now, before you sign it, let me remind you what you're declaring when you put your name on this sign is, I believe. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It, it, it doesn't just mean I believe the historical facts about Jesus. It means that I believe those facts and I'm trusting my life. I, I believe in him as my savior. I'm trusting him as my savior. It's a commitment of the will as well as an acknowledgement of your mind. And so if that's where you are and you'd say, yes, I have come to faith in Jesus Christ and you weren't here last week, we'd love for you to put your name on that sign and you can do that after the service. And, you know, I was sitting down here at the front row when all this was happening last week and the thought that came to me was, you know, I don't know all of these people that I see coming up on the stage and I wish I did. I, I, I try to say this every week and I'm gonna say it again. If, if we haven't met or, you know, it's been a little while, come down to the front sometime and just introduce yourself. I'd love to just know who you are and say hello. But, but I wish I knew everyone is what I was thinking last week. But, but seeing those names go up on... It, was just a moment of unity of the body of Christ for me. And I thought to myself, I don't know that person. I don't know that person, but he's my brother. She's my sister. And there's that sense of the body of Christ that I think that we sometimes lose. And, and sometimes we need something visible and tangible to represent that for us. And so I'm, I'm really glad to have this sign now and it will stay out there during the rest of the series at least. Well, let's jump into our text um, And I'm going to start with the first, let's see, 22 to 24. So the first three verses, and I'll cover them quite quickly so we can keep on going through. But let's set the stage here in verse 22 of chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also, now this would be John the Baptist, John was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. These verses are significant because they're the only time in the the gospel record we have where Jesus and John the Baptist were ministering at the same time. Their ministries were happening sort of side by side. In this case, there was a little bit of a distance. They couldn't have been that far apart because there's not that many places in the Jordan River that are deep enough for you to baptize people. It's not as big a river as as I thought it was before I actually went over there. There are parts of the Jordan that look more like a creek than a river. And our Israeli tour guide said, in the Holy Land, everything gets upgraded. A creek is a river, a hill is a mountain, a lake is a sea. 
And that's really true. When you go over there, you start to see that. So the idea was water was plentiful there. Like this was a part of the Jordan where it was good for baptizing. And so you have Jesus and John in, in you know, two different locations, but not far apart from each other that are both baptizing. And that's very, very interesting. Let's see what happens next. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, of course, talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, you, you have to kind of put the emphasis on it like I did. He's baptizing, all are going to him. Say, like, what about you? I think they expected John to be offended by this. It was, it was sort of this sense of like, you know, you're the one that's, you're the Baptist, you're the baptizer, and, and now someone else is kind of stealing your thunder. And all these people are going to him. It's like, he's starting to get more popular than you. He's starting to get more famous than you. He's starting to get more followers than you. I, I kind of, in my own imagination, I, I have this conversation, you know, maybe it wasn't recorded in our text, but they come up and they like, John, it's time to step up your game. That old shtick about the locusts and the honey's getting a little stale. You know, maybe we should add some new lights and a fog machine and really draw in the crowds. You know, that's sort of the spirit of what's going on here. Instead, they did not get the response from John that I think they expected. John's not offended. Let's see what John has to say in the text that Lindsay read for us just a few minutes ago. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness or bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Such a rich response by John. There's two main themes in here that I wanna point out. The first, I'm gonna bracket 27 through 29A. And then the second main point we'll get to is 29B through verse 30. So the first key idea, what John's talking about, 27 through 29A is this. John knows his role. There's no confusion in John's mind what his role is. So verse 27, I want you to understand this verse this way. When he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. All that I have, John is saying, has, is gift. It's been given to me from heaven. So the, the number of people that I've baptized, the, the followers that I have, the platform that I have, this doesn't come from me. This comes from heaven. And because all that I have is coming from above, I cannot take one step toward my own ambition. I cannot take one step outside of what's been given to me to chase my own glory. That's, that's the starting point for John. He knows his role. And then verse 28, he, he, he's declaring his role. You heard me say previously, I'm not the Christ, but, but I'm sent before him. And it goes back to John chapter one when John the Baptist says, I've been sent before Jesus to point him out to bear witness of Jesus. That's my role, John is saying, that's my job. And then he gives this amazing analogy. You know, the, the one who has the bride's the groom, the friend of the groom rejoices for the groom. Now, weddings have changed a lot in the 2000 years and across the cultures, but some things in weddings have not changed. And there's a close linkage between the friend of the bridegroom that John the Baptist is talking about and our 
best man. It's essentially this, the same idea. So who's the best man? The, the best man is chosen by the groom to stand right beside him, immediately beside him, and has some other responsibilities. Usually like, you know, when I'm officiating a wedding, I always tell the best man to hold the rings. And you're like, they're, they're your responsibility. I look at them straight in the eye. And some of these best men, they have no idea what they're doing. You know, they're just, they're there for the party, whatever. So I have to look at them straight in the eye and say, you must have the rings. And oftentimes I'll say, give the, the license to the best man, because groom, you don't need to worry about it. And, and I'll even say, if for some reason there's a, a fumble of the ring in the wedding ceremony, best man, I want you to get on your knees, not the groom. Best man's gonna serve the groom. That's his purpose. And once he understands that, usually he's in the game. Now, can you imagine if I was officiating a wedding and, and I said, you know, welcome, this is a beautiful occasion. We're gathered here to exalt the glory of the best man. <laughs> would never do that. I would never say the purpose of today is about the best man. Everyone recognizes it's not. It's about the bride and the groom. It's about the wedding ceremony. So this analogy is so helpful. It's so clear. John the Baptist is saying, I have a role and it's an important role, but it pales in comparison to the groom, the bridegroom, who of course is Jesus Christ. So John has this clear picture of his role. The second thing here, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The big idea here is John's joy. And I love his choice of word. John's joy is in Jesus's glory. Guys, I, this is what I want you to grab. It's not just John's duty to exalt Christ. It's his joy to exalt Christ. John is essentially saying to his disciples, not only am I not offended that all the people are flocking to Jesus, it's joyful for me because my purpose was to point to him. My purpose is that he'd be exalted. My whole role that I've been leading in, uh, leaning into these years is now coming to fruition and my joy is now complete. So it's like, again, the, the best man standing up there. That the wedding of his friend, the groom, is a glorious day for him too. It's a beautiful day for him too, but not because it's about him, because he sees the joy of his friend receiving the bride. And so John says, my joy is now complete. And then this sentence that we'll come back to later because I wanna dig into it. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a good summary for any of us who claim to follow Jesus. What a good goal. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, that we would say our joy also is in Jesus's glory. The joy of my life is like the joy of John the Baptist's life. And, and I find fullness of life as Jesus is being glorified through me. Oh, we don't tend to think that way. And I, and I wanna help us try to get there later in the message. But for now, let's finish the text. I wanna draw out a couple things in the last portion and then we'll come back to verse 30 and apply it. Now, before I read 31, let me just note, this is no longer John the Baptist speaking. So you notice the quotation ends in verse 30. So this is now John the writer or John the, the disciple who is now writing. And what he's gonna do in these few verses here, 31, 36, 
is he's gonna draw the first three chapters to a close with a theological summary. And there's some rich things here. He who comes from above is above all. Of course, talking about Jesus. Who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Talking about all the rest of us. He who comes from heaven, Jesus, is above all. He's the leader. He's the forefront of all of us. 32. He bears witness, Jesus bears witness, to what he has seen and heard from where he comes from, from heaven. Yet no one receives his testimony. However, verse 33, whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Jesus is the fullness, the truest representation and picture of God. And when you receive Jesus, you're acknowledging, that's God, I, I, I received God. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And that, that'll, that'll come to play later in the gospel of John when Jesus talks about the spirit of God flowing out of him. And, and that's for us. Verse 35, the father loves his son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. That sounds like John 3, 16, doesn't it? Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God <laughs> remains on him. Okay, all this is good and rich, but, but we only have time to really dissect verse 36, and it's the big one. It's the big verse in this. Two comments on verse 36. Number one, notice how seamlessly John equates belief and obedience. He's setting up a parallel construction here and he uses the words interchangeably. Do you see that? Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. There's a parallel construction going on. Now, you and I tend to think, okay, you believe in Jesus and then you obey him and those are entirely separate. John would say, no, the act of believing is an act of obedience. And John would also say, the act of following Jesus is an act of faith. It's an act of belief. So belief, obedience, Go hand in hand. They're like two sides of the same coin. And if you've been at fellowship like three years ago, I don't remember when it was, four years ago, we taught through the book of James and that was our illustration, was, was a coin. Faith and works, two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate them out. For John as well, belief, obedience, two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate those out, which means if you signed your name on that poster, you were a follower of Jesus, not just a believer in Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. He's your master. That's what that means. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Okay, that's point number one. He uses belief and obedience interchangeably. Point number two, we need to talk about wrath. We need to talk about wrath. This is a problem word in our time. What I mean by that is wrath has become something we don't know how to talk about, that, that we just don't, talk about it. It's a biblical concept that we've kind of turned the volume down because people don't want to hear about wrath. I want to help us reclaim this word a little bit this morning. And and here's the sentence that I want to start with. God's wrath is good. And immediately right there, that's, that's hard for us to accept. God's wrath is good. How could wrath be good? I only have negative associations with wrath, you're likely thinking. God's wrath is good. Now, how can that be? Well, Well, two things you need to know. Number one, 
the more you understand the reality of evil, the more you'll come to see the goodness of God's wrath. You see, part of the reason that we don't know how to talk about wrath anymore is because we've lost our belief in evil. In our day and age, if you talk about evil in the world, you're looked at funny. Like, well, those, those people aren't evil. And, and, and there's a sense that that's right, that they're not. That they're not. But there's also a sense that they're, they've done evil. Or, or that, that position or that posture or that, that hatred inside of a person is not evil. They just weren't taught any better. And so we, we diminish evil or a natural disaster comes into the world, you know, and we say, well, that's not evil. That's just a natural disaster. And, and even as I say these things, I know I'm kind of hitting up against some, some defenses in our own minds, but I want to take us back to what the scripture talks about. Evil is real. Evil is a part of our world. And I think part of the reason we've, we've kind of lost this concept of evil is because we live insulated lives. And in our day, we've so minimized the concept of evil because we feel like, hey, you can't, can't call things evil that's going to upset people. Or, you know, there are other explanations. But, but think about it. Some of you in the room have come face to face with evil in your life. You have. And if you're one of those people, you don't struggle as much with the wrath of God because you, you, you want God's heart set fully against the evil that you experienced. You want and need a God who is just and right, who, who, who would direct his energy and attention toward the evil that was inflicted against you. And I want you to think about the wrath of God this way, guys. God's wrath is his determination to eradicate evil from the world he loves. God's wrath is not directed toward the goodness in the world. God's wrath is directed toward the evil in the world. The problem is the world is infected with evil. That's what Genesis chapter three teaches us. So track with me just on this. If you're able to come this far, keep, keep tracking with me. God's wrath toward evil is a part of his love for the world. Do you remember first part of Genesis of uh, John 3, 16 last week? For God so loved the world. And I said, but the world is dark and the world is evil. God loves this world that's been swallowed up by evil. God loves this world that's been enveloped in darkness. And because of his love for the world, he is determined to entirely eradicate evil from it. So that's the first thing to understand, guys. Evil is real. And the Bible would take it one step further. Evil's not just real. There is someone, a being, behind the evil. The enemy of God, whom the scripture calls the prince of darkness. Jesus says he's come to steal and kill and destroy and so we minimize evil, we minimize Satan, we minimize all these things, and all of a sudden we're like, well, God's wrath is unnecessary, and I have a problem with God's wrath. When you understand evil is real, you, you start to come to see, oh, but God's wrath is directed toward the evil. Please, please, God, eradicate evil from this earth. Okay, that, that's, that's the first thing you gotta know. But here's the second thing you need to know. This one's harder, okay? <laughs> The evil in the world is not just external to us, it is internal in us. Oh man, Rob, now you're messing with me. Are you calling me evil? Well, think about it this way. 
we are all not just in the fallen world, we are a part of the fallen world. Another way to think about it, we are each victims of evil committed against us and perpetrators of evil against others. Haven't we all been wounded and haven't we all been a part of wounding others? And you might say, but, but my wounding of others was accidental. My wounding of others was not nearly as serious as the wounds done against me or the wounds that other people do against other people. I've never killed. I've never done some of these heinous things that might be coming to your mind right now. And yet you are, just as I am, caught up in the ocean of fallenness that is true of this world of darkness. And so the darkness is not just out there. The darkness is in here. And when you do enough digging into your own heart, you start to understand, you start to realize even the evil inside of you, the evil inside of me. So then your brain goes to this. Okay, if, if what Rob said, the definition of wrath is God's determined to eradicate evil from the earth. If that evil is not just outside of me, if it's also inside of me, what does that mean for me? There's good news. The good news that is that in the person of Jesus, God himself came to drink the cup of wrath. When Jesus is in the garden, he's praying to the Father, if there's any other way, Father, take the cup from me. And you're like, what is the cup? Have you ever thought about well, what kind of cup? It's a reference to the Old Testament, which describes the cup of God's wrath, God's determination to eradicate evil from the world he loves, to, to cleanse it from all that is not holy and clean and righteous. Jesus says, not your will, but my will. I will drink the cup of wrath. I will take on myself the wrath. And so whosoever believes in him, John 3, 16, and John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. That means you're no longer under wrath. You're under mercy. You're under grace. You're not under wrath. All it takes is belief. However, whoever does not receive the son, obey the son, believe in the son, these terms are interchangeable shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So whoever cannot come under the mercy of God or will not come under the mercy of God is a better way to say that. Perhaps because they don't believe they need mercy because they don't see the evil in themselves. For that person, they remain under wrath. This is what John is teaching. And we dare not minimize it. We dare not step away from it. May we have eyes to see it. So here's how I'd summarize this. I know this is heavy. God's wrath is good. But what's even better is his provision for us in Jesus. And so anyone who, who steps under the banner of grace, under the banner of mercy, when, when, when the wrath of God fully eradicates evil in the age to come, there you will be 
washed clean of all the evil in you and set free from all the evil external to you. And there will be endless joy in a world without sin. Now, I want to finish with this verse. And then we're going to have our baptism this morning. If this is the cry of John's heart, what you have to understand he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And that's the posture of a disciple. That's the posture of someone who's a follower of Jesus, who's a believer of Jesus. And yet, can we all admit that there's a part of us that doesn't want to decrease? I, I have that in me. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, but you're also honest about the walk of faith, you would say this, he must increase. Yes, to God be the glory. And I really do want Jesus' name to be exalted. But why do I have to decrease for that to happen? I wanna help us resolve a little bit of that tension, okay? I, I wanna to try to integrate those two thoughts together. And, and here's what's helped me. Coming to a deeper understanding of what humility actually is and what it's not. Because isn't this a clear statement of humility? But when you and I hear the word humility, the first thing comes to our mind is, oh, humility means like I disappear or humility means I have to admit that there's nothing good in me or that I'm really, really small and worthless. And in fact, I looked up the definition from Oxford Dictionary. Here's what they wrote about humility. A modest or low view of one's own importance. And so the Bible is like championing the humble. And, and so you're thinking, I don't want to have a low view of my own importance. Don't, don't, I, I know God's more important than me, but don't I also matter? Let me give you a different way to think about humility. Based on what I've read in scripture and, and a, a big word study that I did years ago in humility, this is, this is what I learned. This is my own paraphrase of what I think humility is about in the scripture. Humility is a true perspective of your place in the cosmos. Maybe that's a weird way to say it, but let me explain. It's a true perspective of your place in the cosmos. What does the Bible teach you about your place in the cosmos? Two things. Number one, you're very, very small in relationship to God. You're very, very small. Number two, because you bear his image, you're very, very important. The Bible teaches you both things. You are very, very small and yet you're very, very important. You're important to God. Oh, you're important to God. And you're important to the world. You're an image bearer of God. And so when you start to see humility this way, you start to realize, okay, it's these two things held in tension. And then you start to look around and say, I, I'm no greater than, than you and you and you and you. We're all image bearers of God together. I'm also no less than you and you and you and you and you. I'm very, very small compared to God, but as an image bearer of God, I'm very, very important. Now here's the key. The, the importance doesn't come from your own intellect, talent, strength, or ability. These are the things that prideful people tend to talk about all the time. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Your importance comes from the image of God in you. And that levels the playing field, doesn't it? You look around you and you say, oh my, look at these other image bearers that, that, that I've been elevating myself over in my own mind. There's no need for me to elevate myself over anyone else anymore. I'm very, very important and so are they. 
And when you understand humility this way, you start to realize you can miss humility in two directions. You can be prideful, and that's a miss of humility, but you can also be self-deprecating. And that's another miss. So the prideful person, they, they think to themselves, oh, because of my skill, because of my brain, because of my beauty, because of my talent, whatever it is, I'm better than other people. And they might not say that, but they believe that. The self-deprecating person will say, well, because of my lack of skill, my lack of beauty, my lack of talent, my lack of intelligence, I'm lesser than other people. And they might not ever say that, but they believe it. What do they both have in common? They're basing their worth on what they bring to the table. They're basing their sense of value on, on what they, they see they have in and of themselves or don't have in and of themselves. Neither the prideful nor the self-depreciating person is comfortable in their own skin because their sense of worth is centered on themselves. The Bible will help you with that. The, the, the Bible, as you come to believe and as you come to follow Jesus, who was incredibly humble, will, will come to help you with this balance of, I'm very, very small and I'm very important as an image bearer of God. So let's go back to our text here. When, when John says, I must decrease, don't hear him saying, I don't matter. He has just placed himself as the best man next to Jesus, which was a true description, by the way. John knows he matters. John's role matters. John's not a self-depreciating person. Here's the last thing I want to do is I want to give you a picture that may help you with this. And, and here's, here's the wrestle that, that I think most of us have. It's just like, okay, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. How do I do that? What does that look like? How do I find joy in my own decrease? And, and what, did, what would that even be for me to decrease? That, that does mean I, I make myself smaller? How do I do that? Let me give you a picture. This is an illustration I've used before. Some of you in the room will have seen it before, but I don't think I've ever used it in this room, in the sermon. I think I've used it in some other context. And I used it a week and a half ago with some folks. And I thought, I want to bring this back out because it fits this verse. So here's the illustration. You may have heard it said by well-intentioned people, if God has a fridge, your picture would be on the fridge. And their heart behind that is for you to understand how much you matter to God. And that is a good goal. That's, that's a part of this humility equation, isn't it? You are important to God. You matter so much to God. You matter so much that Jesus came to rescue you. And so that, that's what they'll say. If God had a fridge, your heart's not. But, but I think that can, over time can, can sort of lead to sort of a, a, a self-centered view of your relationship to Jesus Christ. If John the Baptist was on this stage right now and I were to ask him, John the Baptist, if God had a fridge, whose picture would be on it? John the Baptist would not say you. John the Baptist would not say himself. John the Baptist would say, you guys are well-trained. <laughs> That's always the answer is Jesus. Jesus' picture is on the fridge of the Father. 
right? That's what the Bible would tell us. His delight is in the sun. Let's, let's put an image up on the screen. You know, it's imagined that the fridge of God and there's Jesus's picture on the fridge. But here's the thing about this. This does not mean that you don't matter. Take a closer look. And let's see what happens when, when we begin to, to, to zoom in on Jesus Christ. Is you start to see the body of Christ. You, you start to find yourself. You start to find your place. You start to see you and your beauty and your individuality and, and, and the power that is imbued in you as an image bearer of God. Now, this is not some, just some cute little inspiration. This is theologically true. Paul says we are in Christ. And he uses that phrase over and over. Jesus says at his last supper with his disciples, you know, my goal is so that you would be in me and I in you and we are in the Father. There's this unity. And this is, this is us. This is the, the bride of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And so when you start to see this, go, go ahead and, and go to the next one. When you start to see it this way, you realize, it's okay for me to decrease. I'm still on the fridge. I can't get myself off of the fridge just as I couldn't get myself off on the fridge because I'm in Christ. And, and Christ has earned the full delight of the Father. And he didn't do it for him. He did it for us. So, so you can start to loosen your grip a little bit and, and say, I will follow that man. If, if he came to serve that way, I will follow him. I will find myself in him. Oh, Jesus, may I serve you because you are the servant of all. And, and this can start to, to change the way you think about yourself and you think about following Jesus. You can surrender to him because you know he loves you. He must increase, I must decrease. And we're about to see one last picture of that through this baptism. And so while we're preparing for this baptism, let me just remind you of what baptism is. Baptism is a step of following Jesus. Baptism is obedience to a direct command in the scripture. Baptism is identification with Jesus. Baptism, this individual steps into this water in just a minute. What she's saying is, I believe I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to associate myself with Jesus. And, and I'm gonna do that in this beautifully symbolic way. I'm going to go down underneath with Jesus symbolically in his death. And then I'm gonna be raised up with Jesus symbolically in his life. And, and y'all come on in, we're, we're getting some of our uh, fellowship kids in here. So y'all come on in. I want you guys to come right up here to the front row and, and enjoy this and experience this with us. Baptism is a symbol. Baptism does not save you. I like to use the analogy of a wedding ring. When you get married, you put the wedding ring on your finger. It represents who you belong to. This is a tangible representation of who this young lady belongs to. And so I want to go ahead and invite out Corinne Barfield to come onto the stage. Corinne's gonna be baptized this morning. We're so excited for you, Corinne. Just go ahead and step right into the water. That's great. Welcome, y'all. Come on out. 
Come on, bring the family. Bring everybody who wants to come up. And, and, and let me introduce you a little bit. This is Cole and Kristen's, Corinne's parents and family. If you guys want to come up on stage, feel free. Come on up. There'll be plenty of room for all. Y'all just come and gather around Corinne. And maybe you uh, get so close that you get a little wet this morning. That'd be kind of cool. Y'all come onto the stage. Let me slip around here and grab a microphone. So uh, as they're coming up, let me tell you a little bit about this family. You know, the Barfields have been a part of fellowship for quite a long time, and they've got extended family that are part of this church as well. And uh, yeah, you sure do. We're going to fill the stage, aren't we? Well, can y'all slide over just a little bit more? We'll leave room over on this side. There you go. Thank you. That's very, very good. And so this morning, we have the pleasure, the honor of baptizing Corinne and uh, Corinne, I'm not going to ask you any really hard questions. We've already gotten to know you a little bit, but I do have an important question to ask you. How's the water? Um, it's pretty warm. <laughs> it's pretty warm. That's, that's la the last service. They said it was cold. So I think we, we did a little warming of the water in between. I'm glad. I'm glad it's good. Cole, let me hand the microphone to you and allow you a chance to say a few things about your daughter. Um, Corinne, we are so proud of you this day on your baptism. We've seen evidence of your faith in Christ in many aspects of your life. Whether it be in your nighttime conversations and prayers, saying verses prior to gymnastics meets, admitting when you're wrong and asking for forgiveness, being a light to your friends and family, your empathy and your compassion in how you see others. You have consistently shown your desire to grow in your relationship with Christ and become more dependent on him and shine his light to others. Corinne, the core of baptism means identification. You are first a child of God. This world will attempt to place many identities on you throughout your life. An identity in what you do, such as gymnastics, where you go to school, who you hang out with, or even being a member of our own family. In fact, this is a struggle that all of us throughout our lives deal with. But this day is a day to remember. This day, you're showing everyone that you have an identity in Christ and you, as well as all of us, have to daily acknowledge what our true identity is, a beloved child of God. You are our daughter, but most importantly, you're our sister in Christ. Amen. Amen. Those were good words. And, and I, I know, Corinne, as you hear those words from your dad, and, and I know you all have had lots of conversations about this, I hope you know not only how much you're loved by them, but how much you're loved by us. So just, just take a look at this congregation right now. It, these people are also your family. I'm your brother, and those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a beautiful picture this morning. We are so glad that you're in this family. And so I'm gonna ask you just two more very easy, quick questions. The, the first is this, do you believe that Jesus is God's son who died for you and was raised again for you? Yes. And are you being baptized this morning to show the world that you're a follower of Jesus? Yes. Amen. Then it is our honor to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. <laughs> 